Amen. Would you have a seat? Would you have a seat? Thank you, team, by City Worship, leading us so well. Uh, really special. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter, uh, a lot, chapters uh, 4 through 14. We will cover the gamut. It's only 10 chapters, people. Uh, we want you to make sure that you get what you paid for. Um, so uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter, we're going to start reading chapter 11, and then we're going to look at the life of Solomon. Um, if you had, were not able to join us last week for the first part of the life of Solomon, I encourage you to go uh, online uh, on YouTube. We have all of our sermons there online, so you can go visit and, and look at those to catch up a little bit. Um, but join us. 1 Kings, I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 11, starting verse 1. It says this, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Kevin, is this in the Bible? Yeah, this is in the Bible, okay. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonians, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they be with you. For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Now Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned, his heart, turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of, his, of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the god of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, and the abominations of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow, wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain of the east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that you speak the truth. You speak the truth in love, but you speak the truth. And you show us the lives of, of men and women and the impacts that they make. And Lord, some of those impacts are, are powerfully positive. And then some of those impacts are really a mixed bag. And that's what we see in the life of Solomon. I pray that as we study the life of Solomon, you would give us wisdom to understand how we're supposed to live life, how, we, how we're supposed to prioritize you in our life so we may not fall into the same issues that Solomon fell into. And so Lord, I ask that you guide our hearts, guide this time so that we may not drift into the things that will destroy us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, an unanchored boat begins to drift. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, we would take kids to a uh, camp, and uh, at the camp, there would all be all sorts of activities. There'd be ropes courses, there'd be like axe throwing, archery, all the basic kind of kid things that are, you know, fun to make kids do. Go throw an axe, child, it'll be great. And, uh, and, and one of the activities that we would do would be canoeing. And so there'd be a lake at the camp, and so you'd get the kids to, to get in the boat, go out uh, with a safe life preserver, go out and come back. And we would always tell them, okay, when you, when you come back, make sure to tether the boat either to the dock or pull it all the way up on dry land so that the boat will stay, you know, where it's supposed to stay. But inevitably, 
inevitably, we'd be calling everyone, okay, come in, it's time for lunch, or it's time for dinner, or whatever, and then, and the kids would be like, okay, I gotta go, and they'd like pull it up part way, or kind of tie it, and then we'd be inside, we'd have dinner, and we'd walk out, and we'd about walk out to the lake, and there'd be three or four boats, just kind of cruising by themselves, they've taken them themselves for their own little tour of the lake, right, just in the middle of nowhere, and we'd be like, who didn't tie the boat down, and then there'd be like, some kid would be like, oh, we're supposed to tie it. Like, yes, child, you're supposed to tie it because an untethered boat will drift. It's normal. It happens. And so one person would have to go out there and like canoe his way out and then like have them all in tow, come back. It'd be ridiculous every sort of time. And it, and it was kind of funny when it came to little canoes. I mean, that's like a small, insignificant thing. It was an inconvenience. It was uh, unfortunate, but it wasn't tragic. That drift wasn't tragic, it was easy to overcome, but there are some drifts that, that are more tragic. In the summer of 1960, there were some individuals that encountered the dangerous power of drift. Young Roger Woodward, age seven, and his sister Deanna, 17, had just recently moved their family to Niagara Falls. And there was a, a man there uh, in the community that they lived in, and it was Deanna's birthday. She was 17 years old. And so they, why don't I take uh, your daughter and your son out, and I just take them out in a boat and go around Niagara Falls. And so they go on this little tour, um, not near the falls, but, but upriver from it to kind of see all the beautiful landscape that's going on. But as they were puttering along, suddenly the boat hit a sheer rock, destroying the propeller. And suddenly this boat that was having fun out here Suddenly, tragedy hit as the current starts pulling this boat towards the edge of the falls. The little boat had no anchor. And as Jim, uh, the, the person who had invited him out there, began to row back to shore, the current began picking up speed faster and faster, and he was unable to row back. And as they entered the rapids, um, some distance before the falls, the boat began to fill with water, and wild waves were crashing over it. And they were tossed rapidly about the vessel. Deanna, who was closest to the American side um, of the Horseshoe Falls, struggled to reach shore. And tourists come and came. And one person climbed over the edge and and pulled her in to save her life. Her younger brother, a seven-year-old boy, um, Roger, he got thrown from the boat. He later, Roger would say, that he could see the people on the shore, but no one was able to help him. He said the water calmed a bit. And then he was floating in air. He recalled thinking that he was about to die, saying that he felt like he was floating on a cloud. Later, people would tell him, no, that was when you went over the falls. In spite of the massive boulders that littered the river below, he actually survived, dazed with concussions. It's called the miracle of Niagara Falls that this young man survived. The man that took them to the falls, though, he was not so lucky. He ensured that the, both kids had life preservers, so he didn't have a third life preserver for himself, and so he lost his life in this tragic accident. The power of drift. If the life of Solomon tells us anything, it tells us the destructive power of drift. See, Solomon was a man with incredible potential, unlimited potential in so many ways. He had wisdom, he had knowledge, he had, at the beginning of his life, a close relationship with God. He was tethered to the right things. But as life went on, what we see is that he became less and less tethered to the things that would ground him, and the result of his life was tragic. And here's the tragedy of Solomon's life. Not only was his life a tragic failure by the end, 
the legacy of his life was a tragic failure. And here's the truth about your life. The life you live not only affects the days of your life, it affects the people you leave behind. The legacy of your life not only affects your life, but it's a legacy of the people you leave behind. And so we're going to close up the, the, a look at Solomon's life today. And I want to look at three movements this morning. The first is this, to, to look at his highlight reel. Solomon actually did accomplish some amazing things. So I want to look at his highlight reel. He does have some highlights. Secondly, though, I'm going to look at the things that drifted him. What caused him to drift to destruction. And then thirdly, we're going to look at some lessons from his life. So to begin with, let's look at his highlight reel. And I'm going to go through these quick, but just to give you a smattering of the types of things that Solomon accomplished. And here's, and here's why it's important to do this. Because often in culture, we choose to diminish the successes of people because of their failures. We do. So as soon as we see one, per, one thing wrong with an individual, we dismiss their whole life of contributions. That's, that's so common. So read about any celebrity, any significant person. We look at one failure in their life, and we dismiss all of their accomplishments. Um, the, the, we could also do the reverse. We could, we could dismiss their failures by looking at their accomplishments. We can focus on, well, they did all these great things, but let's like, overlook all of their failures of the past. The Bible doesn't do either of those. It looks at the failures and successes and has this, a realistic self-appraisal of the life of an individual. And that's what the Bible does in the life of Solomon. It doesn't dismiss his successes. It also doesn't dismiss his failures. It shows both of them in living color. So you can look fully at the life of an individual and learn from them. And here's the first thing that we see in chapter 4, starting verse verse 20. It says this, that Solomon was one that brought peace to the people. In chapter 4, verse 20, it says this, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea, and they ate and drank and were happy. And Solomon ruled over the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and over the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all of his days. It was predicted that Solomon would be a man of peace. His name, Solomon, means peaceable. And it was believed that Solomon would rule over the nation and show peace. God was showing what it would look like to receive the full blessings of God. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. And Solomon was a picture of that. When you receive the full blessing of God, this is what life can look like in terms of the blessings. And so he ruled over a peaceful time in the nation. And a couple other his accolades. Jump down to verse 29 of chapter 4. It says this. That, Solomon, that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and a breadth of mind like the sands of the seashore. What we're going to see in Solomon is that he had a mind that was broad in application. He had so much wisdom and it was broad. He studied and learned all sorts of things. Here's what it says. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the people of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, and they list some people. And they said, here's what he did. His fame spread, verse 32. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He wrote three books of the Bible that were preserved. Not all of his writings are preserved. But he wrote um, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, and one song that is recorded in the Psalms. He was a prolific writer. His wisdom and and the production of his writing was, was epic. But not only in his writing, he also studied deeply. Look at verse 33. 
He says he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts, of birds, and reptiles, and fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who heard his wisdom. You see that this man studied animal life. So he was a man that was creative, but he was also a man that was scientific. He studied the sciences. He studied animals and plants and trees and learned. And people from all over would come to learn and listen to his insights. He was incredibly capable. He was a Renaissance man in so many ways. In 1 Kings 5, we see that he was a, an accomplished statesman. It says, Now Hiram, verse 1, chapter 5, the king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon said to him, I'm here to build the, uh, God's house, a house to worship God. Verse 6, Now therefore he commanded that cedars of Lebanon be cut down for him. And my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. And you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. He, he is one that is a statesman. He, he moves in. He says, hey, you're accomplished, and you just tell me what you want paid, and I will pay your price. He builds this relationship. He builds this um, really interesting connection with, with Haram, who starts bringing him all of these goods. He's also an architect. In 1 Kings chapter 6, it says in the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of God. So in chapter 6, he begins building the house of God, the worship, the temple of God. And Solomon's temple was epic. And in chapter 7, Solomon begins building his own house. And his own house took about 13 years to construct. And if you read chapter 7, you can see that it was luxurious. There was walls laid in gold. There was ivory. There was crystals everywhere. There was beautiful merchandise all over the place in his construction. And not only that, in chapter 9, you see that Solomon literally built cities. In chapter 9, it says Solomon had built store cities for his chariots, for his horsemen, And for his soldiers, he literally built cities. What are you doing in your spare time? (laughs) He's building temples. He's building his own house. He's constructing cities for all the things that he has. He was an entrepreneur. In 1 Kings chapter 9, it says this, that Solomon built a fleet of ships. And Hiram, who who was helping him, was familiar with that, and he learned a seaman in trade. He was an entrepreneur. He says, in order to expand the economy of the nation of Israel, we need, we need a fleet of ships. So let's build a fleet of ships. Let's bring them here, and let's expand the trade routes. That expands the economy of the nation. So you see that, that Solomon was one that was, was epic in his creation, in his wisdom, in his ability to move all of these things together. And the nation of Israel flourished under Solomon. They had wealth that they had never experienced before, nor will experience since. They had wealth that was unparalleled. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, God comes in in his second visit to Solomon. There's three moments in Solomon's life that God comes and has a personal conversation with Solomon. One is at the beginning of his life. This is midway through his life. God comes to Solomon and tells him again, after he finished the temple, he says, 
I want you to follow me. But if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut you off from Israel. He moves in and warns him, okay, you've been very successful, Solomon. You've brought this nation to a, an incredible peak. But I'm going to warn you one more time. Will you follow me with your whole heart, or will you begin to drift? And sadly, in 1 Kings chapter 9, we watch Solomon begin to drift. See, Solomon was about 20 to 25 years old when he took the throne. And over these 20 to about 20 years of his life, he has spent building all of these things for the nation of Israel. He was one that, that followed the Lord in many ways of his life. He built the temple, the center of worship. He built his home. He is, he is constructing all of these things to make the nation safe. And now 20 years in, there's something that happens in the heart and life of Solomon. He begins to drift. And listen, it's, it's almost proverbial at this point. Men in their 40s tend to hit this moment of drift. It's called a midlife crisis. At that point, they've worked their career, they've established some things, and they've kind of set some things in life, they've, they've accomplished some things, and, and there comes a tendency in men, it can be in women too, but it's proverbial in men, where they go and they start trying to fill their lives because they have some money, they have some success, they have some validity and importance, and they say, let's now start building something. One quote that was just hilarious that that. Women to preserve their youth by cosmetics. Men to preserve their youth by fast cars. And I thought that was hilarious. But there's a truth to that. There's a truth to that. Solomon in his 40s is now at a very high point. Is he going to continue to follow the Lord or is the man going to begin to drift? And in 1 Kings 9 verse 16, we see the first inkling of his drift. And Solomon's going to drift in four ways. His first drift is this, that he drifts towards powers of influence. 1 Kings 9.16 says this, Now Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and killed the Canaanites who lived in the city. The nation of Israel was supposed to um, get the people that currently live there out. We'll talk more about why later on. It's actually a very destructive time. Now Pharaoh, he, was, he married Pharaoh's daughter, and so he did some of that work for Solomon. Now he gave the city to Solomon's daughter, as a, or to his daughter as a, as a dowry to Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer, the lower Bashim. And so here's the first thing that we see, that Solomon married an Egyptian woman. And the reason that was a problem is because God told him, your heart's going to drift from me when you start pulling these other people and start marrying within them. And then you have the, this influence of the father-in-law. Imagine such a thing, right? You marry this individual, and suddenly, oh yeah, you're connected to that family. And so the father-in-law has some ideas. Hey, look, I have an army. I'll go destroy those cities, and I'll give it to you as a gift. And suddenly, the king of Egypt now has this, this little inroad into the life of Solomon. And so Solomon starts nudging up 
to this Egyptian king. He starts saying, okay, you've destroyed that. I'm going to go build there. You've, you've changed some of my actions. I'm going to follow in there. And you see, you see him drifting towards these powerful alliances. One of the reasons scholars believe he had over 700 wives at one point in time is because these were marriage alliances to other kings. This was about establishing peace with these other people. And so suddenly you watch Solomon go from a statesman that is building for God to a statesman that is being pulled in a lot of different directions. And here's the truth. When people of power can influence you, it's intoxicating. Because you want to get some of their shine. Like, they've been successful. They built this company. They've established in this community. There's something that they have. And so when powerful people all of a sudden have have your ear that they want to speak into your life, it can become intoxicating. There's an article I read entitled, Seduced by Power, by a man named Jim Wallace. And he writes this. This is fascinating. He says, everyone loves to quote the famous dictum of Lord Actum. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Heads nod around, and everyone ignores what a wise old Englishman said. Power does indeed corrupt human beings, but it compromises principles, and it quiets consciences, and it mellows morality. Power tells us to just get along instead of getting upset. It encourages us toward smooth sailing and discourages us from rocking the boat. Human beings seem not to handle power very well. Of all people, religious leaders, I'm on the block too, religious leaders ought to know this best. Instead, religious leaders often are among the most easily corrupted by power, especially when they get close to political power. And he gives an example. He says, Doug Coe, who was the founder of um, the prayer breakfast that happens in Washington, D.C., Lots of powerful people were all coming apart of these prayer breakfasts. And here's what Doug Coe told Jim Wallace. He says, the father of the prayer breakfast movement once told me that the best way to get religious leaders together was to invite them to a meeting with a powerful political leader. He said, most church leaders generally ignored Jesus' suggestion to take the humbler places at the banquet and wait until they are invited to come up higher. Instead, they jostle for the best positions and places at events where the powerful gather. And that's within all of us. I can get drawn in, and you can get drawn in. When I can see their shine, when they have success and some sort of power, all of a sudden that becomes alluring to us, and we nestle up, and the danger of that is that we can compromise, so we'll go along to get along. And that's what happened to Solomon. He nestled up to people in power, to powerful people. And then his second drift that we see is towards self-indulgence. First Kings chapter 9 says this, So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and that lower area. Verse 19, and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and cities for his horsemen. And read this little line. And whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and all of his dominion. That little phrase just should jump out at you. And whatever he desired... There was nothing that was off limits. That word desire is the Hebrew word for love. And you see his heart start loving things. 
and starts loving building things and creating things and, and amassing this wealth and, and doing all of these things that on the outside could be legitimized. Hey, I'm just helping the country. I'm just helping the city. I'm just doing nice things. But, but as, as he goes further and further along, his, his heart begins wrapped up in these projects. And, and over and over again, you don't see God speak to Solomon once. You see all of his accolades, but no, no thought of God. Aristotle once said, the self-indulgent man craves for all pleasant things or those that are most pleasant and is led by his appetite to choose these at the cost of everything else. Have you ever been drift, have you ever feel yourself drifting towards self-indulgence? I remember the first time you, you, get, you get your first job and you get a paycheck and you're just like, a hundred dollars, oh my gosh. And that was unreal. You're like, I've been sacking groceries for a month and they finally, they pay me like 50 cents an hour and they, and they finally got that check and you got $100. And what did you do? You didn't say to yourself, I'm gonna save, I'm gonna tithe, I'm gonna help the, the homeless. Like that, those were probably not your thoughts when you were 16 and you got that check. What did you say to yourself? I'm gonna go buy Anything I want, I'm going to get. And it was back in the day, you're like, I'm going to get a CD. Nowadays, you're like, I'm going to buy an app. You know, like there's something that you're like, I'm going to do something for me. And we legitimize it. We're just like, and I deserve it. I deserve it. Like I worked hard. And so I should just start indulging myself. And that's what Solomon did. He's like, man, I got this money coming in. I got these things. And, and hey, I kind of want to do that. And I've got, the, I've got the freedom and financial wherewithal to do that. So I kind of want to do that. I'm going to do that. And, and I've got the freedom and the financial wherewithal. I'm going to go ahead and buy that. And I'm, I'm going to start moving and, and doing these things that I desire. And, and because success is coming in, no one is speaking in to his life. And so he goes and he goes and he goes. There's an article that says this, the lie we tell ourselves about self-indulgence and what it costs by Barry Michaels. It says this, self-indulgence exhausts the energy you need in order to get what you want out of life. What's so devious about giving it up, giving up to your impulses is that it drains you drip by drip. So gradually you're not even aware of it. Historically, this process was seen as the work of the devil in his role as the tempter. It seduces you with small pleasures, each inconsequential by itself. He waits patiently as you give time and time again. Little by little, you lose the willpower to resist his enticements. And finally, you pay the ultimate price. It's too late to accomplish what you want in life. When we give in to self-indulgence, it drains us drip by drip by drip. And so then Solomon moves from, from moving towards people of influence, towards pursuing his own self-indulgence, to thirdly, to drifting toward extravagance. 1 Kings 10 shows the extravagance of Solomon. 1 Kings 10 says this about his, his annual income. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six. 666 talents of gold. A talent is about a ton. He has a ton, tons of gold coming in every year. There's debate about how much money that is, but there's people in modern day in America that are asking you to invest in gold, so it's, it's worthwhile. And so what did Solomon do with this? 
He made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went to each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. So he says, I've got all of this gold. What am I going to do with it? Let's start making stuff. Let's make shields. I don't know. You have a golden shield. You have a golden shield. Everyone get a golden shield, right? Everyone's getting all of this wealth. And the king made himself a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps. The throne had a round top, and each side were seats of armrest, had two lions standing beside the armrest, the like of what was never made in any kingdom. He says, I want the best throne. I want it made of ivory, and I want lions. Why? Because lions are pictures of awesomeness and power and me, and, and I want 12 of them. I need lions around me, and so I want this ivory tower and this ivory throne. I'm going to sit on it. And then in verse 21, and all of Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all of the vessels of the house of Lebanon, the forest, were pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was considered as any, as not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. He's like, I don't want silver. I want gold. I want platinum. I want something more expensive. And so he starts amassing this wealth and building these things. And then he had ships from Tarshish coming in and bringing in silver and gold and peacocks. Why peacocks? Because I can. Because I can. Who's going to tell me no? I've got all the money I want. I can do whatever I want. And then he says, okay, I've done the peacock thing. I've done the gold thing. What's left? I want to collect some cars. And so that's what he does next. He says, I want to start collecting cars. So I'm going to build a sweet garage. I'll call it a city. I'll have my people there. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, in whom he stationed in chariots and cities around the kings of Jerusalem. You will go and you will live in my city. I will pay for you to live. What will you do there? You'll just sit and pet my horses. That's what you will do. And you will sit and you will polish my chariots. You will you will just care for all the things that I've amassed. You're like, well, that's crazy. Who would do that? Sultan Hassanini Bokai has the largest collection of Rolls-Royce cars, which are around 500 vehicles. The cost of his most favorite is around $600,000. The total car collection is worth about $4 billion. And let me just say, don't think you wouldn't if you could. Don't think you wouldn't if you could. Most of you aren't playing with billions of dollars, but you've played Monopoly. And whenever you get a little bit higher up in Monopoly, and you've got your thing, and they come and land on your boardwalk, what are you going to do? Pay me! You're going to like pull in on them. And you're like, I will buy that from you. I'll be, oh, you got a mortgage that? I will take that from your hands. And you, you just wait. I remember playing Monopoly with my kids recently. It's a terrible game. I'm like, we all turn evil in this thing. Like, like, like this is wrong. When you had seemingly unlimited wealth, what would you do with it? And I'll tell you what, we get dark. We get dark. We look to play and pay, and, and if, you, if you want to just say, like, Kevin, I don't really believe that I would be that self-indulgent and that extravagant, I just want you to take a moment and ask yourself this. Where do your dreams go when you dream of the good life? What consumes your imaginations? HGTV. It's a beautiful show, right? Beautiful network. 
But some of us watch HGTV hoping for the dream home. Because if we just had the money, you better believe we would go spend it. Neil Postman, in a book several years ago, wrote a book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in the book, he compares at the beginning of it two authors, George Orwell and, um, and, and, um, uh, and Huxley. He compares Orwell and Huxley, and he says, look, both of these men had visions of what would destroy humanity. One believed that it was actually a, an oppressive government regime. Huxley believed it was actually the pursuit of our pleasures. Here's what he says. What Orwell, Orwell feared were those who had banned books. What Huxley feared were those who had no reason to ban a book. For there, were, <laughs> there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those would deprive us of information. Huxley feared that those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passive passivity and egotism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth that we'd be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Oh my gosh. Orwell feared that we would become captive to culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of feelings, an orgy-porgy of centrifugal bubbly puff. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil liberty, libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley addressed people controlled by inflicting pain. In the brave new world, they were controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that we, what we would hate would ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love would ruin us. You see the difference? Solomon was, was afflicted by the things that he loved. And his heart drifted. And all of a sudden, he's amassing this wealth. He's amassing these things. And his heart goes further and further and further away from God. And God had warned him about this. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, he says, look, kings, when you are in positions of power, here's what you should not do in Deuteronomy 17. You must not acquire for yourself many horses or cause people to return to Egypt. And he said, you not sh- should not acquire yourself many wives for yourself, lest your heart turn. And he shall not acquire for himself an excessive silver or gold. And we see that Solomon failed at every warning. And the last failure we see is his drift toward decadence. Decadence is defined as this, the act or process of f- falling to an inferior condition. It's moral degeneration. It's decay. It's unrestrained or excessive self-indulgence. And what we see when Solomon was given the freedom to do whatever he wanted, he chose to. 1 Kings 11 says it this way. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, the Moabite, the Ammonite, the Edomite. We we read it. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. And here's what he did. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, 1,000 women with their own agendas and their own gods and their own things they wanted to worship. And his heart started drifting further and further 
and further, and he drifted into the Canaanite religion, the religion that was popular in that region, the religion that God said, don't do this when you get there. And so what did that religion look like? And I've heard so many people say this, like, well, God was just like selfish, right? He said, don't worship other gods, worship him. And that's just a selfish view of God. But that, that represents a misunderstanding of what was going on in the culture. What was going on for over 400 years before Israel ever entered into the land? And let me just tell you, most of the scholars that write on this and have research on what religion looked like and what worship looked like to the Canaanites, they won't even write it down because it's so grotesque. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary gives a little bit of a description of this. As he describes the different the gods that Solomon built altars to and participated in the worship of that, here's what it looked like. The Canaanites believed that the land regained its fertility because of an annual mating of Baal and Anath. What better form could their own religious activities take than imitating the sexual behavior of their chief deities? Hence, there was always pronounced orgastic, orgiastic elements in Canaanite worship. So what did it look like? Ashtoreth was the goddess of sex and fertility, whose worship included licentious rites of worship of stars and the vile goddess. Molech, worship involved human sacrifice, especially children, which is strictly prohibited by the law, but by anyone who would. <laughs> Chemosh, as noted, a human sacrifice became a religious activity in Canaan. In Chemosh, there was lots of this as well. Burnt offerings to Chemosh included the sacrifice of children. And so you watch Solomon's life of this drift from, I'm going to move in with these powers of influence. I'm going to move to self-indulgence. I'm going to be excessive in my expenditures. And you know what? These people are all going in this direction. They've all influenced. Let's just do it. Let's just go for it. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Let's just do it. And the results were destructive to him, to the whole community. That's what worship looked like, and that's what Solomon was pulled into. It was extremely, extremely dark. And here's why God says, if you worship everything else, it will destroy you. He's because he knows that drift from God will destroy you and destroy everyone else around you. I'm here to save you, not destroy you. And here's, the, here's, here's what's tragic. Anyone that increases in power, increases in, in influence, can be pulled here. There's an article published in um, American Psychological Sciences in July of 2019, or sorry, July 19th of 2011. And it says this, data from large surveys of 1,500 professionals were used to examine the relationship between power and infidelity and the process underlying this relationship. Results showed that elevated power is positively associated with infidelity because power increases confidence in the ability to attract other partners. This association was found for both genders. Gender did not moderate these results. All of us put in circumstances where we have power and influence and opportunity, there's no telling how dark we could go. That's what we see in the life of Solomon.
It went worse and worse and worse. And God says, I've got to put a stop to it. In 1 Kings 11, it says that God was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. And he says, I will tear, I will literally rip, split apart this worship from you. I will cut it out of your hands. And the kingdom was ripped in the life of his son. And the reason these verses are in the Bible is because God loves us and he wants to protect us. He wants to shield us from the things that will destroy us. So I want you to give you a couple questions to assess whether or not you are drifting. And you may not have the opportunities of drift that Solomon did, but all of us can have a temptation to drift from where God calls us to, to, to be. So I'm to give you a couple questions to help assess it. Do I drift toward powerful influences? Well, how do I know if I'm doing that, Kevin? Do I name drop? Do I prioritize meeting with certain people over others? Do I chase the name so I can inherit some of their shine? Do I drift toward powerful influences? Secondly, do I drift toward self-indulgence? How do I know? Am I prioritizing personal expenditures or time to myself? Am I currently self-focused in my decision-making? Do I prioritize my needs over other people's? Or do I have a drift toward extravagance or decadence? And you may not have the money, but I'd ask you this question. What consumes your deepest desires? When you're alone in your room dreaming about the good life, what, what pulls your heart? Do you have a drift towards decadence? And all of these things, I would say, there, there's probably something that we can pull within ourselves and say, man, I, I'm not where I want to be with God. There's something dark within my heart. So I want to give you three lessons from the life of Solomon. Three lessons that you can apply to pull from the life of Solomon. The first is this. When you dismiss God's command, there's always a steady drift. See, there's a misunderstanding that we, we, to say that, that, that I, if I just choose to go my own way, I won't drift into something very, very dark. It's very, very true. If you dismiss the commands of God, you will steadily, steadily drift. Secondly, don't underestimate the wake you create with your life. Here's what I mean by that. Um, some friends of mine have, uh, have boats, and I love uh, using their boats and not having to care for it myself. Uh, and, and they'll take you out on the boat, and you can go, uh, like, I don't know, you can go wakeboarding, or you can go tubing on the back of the boat. And as the boat's going, it creates a wake. Now, it's really fun to be in the back of the wake and just enjoy, like, going up and, and, kinda, and kind of either wakeboarding or tubing on behind it. It's actually really, really fun. And, and it's great if the, if the boat is going in a good direction. It's terrible when the boat is doing something stupid. So several years ago, a friend of mine took us out on the boat, and, and I was a youth pastor, and there was a kid who was a sophomore in high school at the time, and he starts doing donuts in the water, and I just slam into this 16-year-old, and he goes spinning and lands and hurts his rib on my side. I'm like, I'm like man, you were dumb to do that. It was fun, but you were dumb. And we had no control because we were simply pulled in his wake. The same is true with your life. Don't underestimate who you are pulling behind you. 
All of us like to assume that we live on an island, that our actions don't impact others, but that's a lie. Your actions will impact others, and they'll impact if you're married, they're gonna impact your spouse, they're gonna impact your children if you have kids, and if you don't have either of those things, those things will impact your family or your friends or other people. The, the wake of your life will impact the lives of the people around you, and what we see in Solomon is that, that his wake created devastation pretty broad for the nation of Israel. It tore the country in two. Number three, your drift is never quick, but the fade is inevitable. Your drift is never quick, but that fade is inevitable. The next king that's going to come is Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And some of the old men come to him and say, hey, look, Solomon was kind of out of control. Can you, like, tether that down? And Rehoboam goes, no, we're pushing further. And at that moment, the kingdom is ripped in two from him. And here's what's a sad little moment in Rehoboam's life in 1 Kings 14. It says this, now in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, um, Shishak, king of Egypt, came against Jerusalem. Okay, the country that was supporting him came against Rehoboam. And they took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them there. Everything that Solomon had amassed, all the wealth that he had built, was vapor. It faded. It's tragic, but it's true. Anything we built that is not built by God will fade away, and someone else will take it away. There's only two things in life that last for eternity. The word of God, the Bible in your hand, and the souls of men, the person sitting next to you. Everything else will vanish away. And it's never quick, but that drift is slow and consistent, and it will lead to a fade. There's a band, and they have a title called, to a song called Slow Fade. And the band is Casting Crowns, whether you like them or not, I don't care. Listen to the lyrics. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands and darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go, for it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when the black and white have turned to gray. And thoughts invade and choices made. A price is paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. Who is in your life to ask you the questions you don't want to answer? Who is in your life that can say, that's enough, no more? Who is in your life that can say, you know what, the way you're spending your money, the way you're consuming your thoughts, the way that you're going down this road, it will destroy you. Who do you have in your life that loves you enough to not leave you as you are? For some of you, that's first to come to Jesus Christ. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus brings conviction to us, not to destroy us, but to save us. For others of us, we have the Holy Spirit, we're Christians, we're following the Lord or we're trying, but we have no community of believers, men or women that aren't impressed by us, but love us. That can say, all right, sir, all right, ma'am, all right, friend. You're drifting. Come back. I don't know where you are this morning. But maybe one of the application questions kind of gets to you. What's consuming your imaginations, your dreams? What's causing you to fade? And the offer is always the same. Jesus Christ, to those that are running from him, says, come back. Revelation says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open up, he can come with me and I'll I'll dine with him. The offer is always the same. Jesus Christ, to cleanse you of your sins, to reconcile you to your heavenly Father and empower you to live a new life. Our prayer team is here. We're here every week, but we're here this week too. And we wanna pray alongside you. So for those of you that have never put your faith alone, wholly and solely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it's not time to turn over a new leaf. You need to receive new life. Come to Jesus Christ and we wanna pray with you today about that. For others of you, you, you've been drifting. There's things pulling your heart and passions and life away from the Lord. Well, we want to pray alongside you. We want to be battled alongside you. And if you don't have a friend, guess why you came to church? To meet a friend. And our team is here to be your friend, to stand beside you, to pray alongside you. We want to connect with you. I don't know what your response might be, but in our closing time together, I pray that you would come receive prayer. Let's stand beside you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the life of Solomon, not because it's fun to look at. Uh, It was hard to study, Lord. But Lord, thank you that you did not give up on Solomon, that you warned and you stepped and you warned. And Lord, thank you that you never give up on us. So Lord, I pray this morning you would draw us close to you. If we see ourselves drifting to danger, Lord, you would pull us back. Lord, I pray that we would not have a tragic legacy, but we would have a legacy of life that's empowered by your spirit. So Lord, I lift up each person here. Help us to evaluate where we are and Lord, help us to move to where you are. Lord, we love you. 